0: If you'll turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. As we've seen so far, God has expressed Himself to us in His power and His might, shown us that His Word and His will have both creative power and purpose for His people that God spoke things that were not were made. We saw that God tenderly went to the dirt and formed Adam and made Adam in his image and that God tenderly put Adam to uh, sleep and from his side drew out a rib and created for him a bride. We have seen that God has been completely gracious and tender towards his people and giving them from every fruit tree fruit to eat every time that they are hungry and that there is a river flowing that grows in its expanse. And spreads out all over the earth that they might drink from. And this morning we come to Genesis 3 and it's not just a story about Adam and Eve. This is a real moment in history, but brothers and sisters, it is your story. Why is it every Sunday we have to confess our sins? It's rooted here. Our first parents. And the conversation that goes on in the garden here, these things that unfold matter. And they matter to you this morning because without an answer to the fall, there is no reason to gather and there is no reason to hope. And so laid before us is the fall of mankind into sin. But there is also hope that would be set before us. Let's pray before we read God's Word. We thank You, Lord God. That you are the the God who delights to reveal to your people truth. And so this morning, Lord, show us the problem. Show us why we have these desires that well up in us, why it seems over and over again we fall into sin. God, show us your word with clarity. That we might understand both what you command, Lord, what you require of us, and that at the same time we would understand your mercy, your salvation. Lord, be gentle with us. Guide our hearts, open our eyes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, The first seven verses of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. It's the hearing that we need to understand this morning. May God help us hear. This morning, as we look at this tragedy in the garden, we're going to consider three points as they unfold. One, did God actually say... Two, is God too severe? And three, the knowledge of good and evil. First, did God actually say, a new voice has come into the garden. It's a voice that will be a plague upon uh, mankind until the end of the story of Scripture. A serpent has come in our passage, and it is none other than Satan himself, one who has already been cast out of heaven because of his rebellion against God. And he has come to do what damage he can to God's reign. And his first day, as he sights in, is those that were made in the image of God. He has an utter hatred of of God, and this is the root of his malice. He can't overthrow God. He's already been overthrown by God and cast out. But he hopes to do irreparable damage to God's prized and treasured possession in mankind. The one he has put his image into. In what way will he seek to do this? Does he have to come and use violence or force No, He's more crafty than this. He will simply use a question. Simply use just words. A question that will have eternal consequence. A question that strikes at the very heart of the relationship that God has with His creation, that God has with mankind. Verse 1, He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now this seems benign enough, doesn't it? It, 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 it's, it doesn't sound malicious. He's simply trying to gather information. But there are four aspects of intent in his question. First, it isn't a question of curiosity, but a question to implant doubt. Second, The question is phrased in such a way that it makes God look like He's the kind of God that withholds something good from His people to incite the idea that we can question God's goodness and His mercy and His authority. Third, it is a direct mischaracterization uh, of what God said. And lastly, it introduces an idea that God's Word is subject to our judgment. The deceit of Satan is to create this unbelief that God can be taken at His Word. And Eve's answer to the question is also filled with problems. She says in verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. One theologian says three things have happened in her response. She has diminished, added to, and softened God's word. What did God actually say? We look in chapter 2 at verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded man, he's speaking to Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will, not perhaps, not maybe, you will surely die. You see, the woman has diminished this by saying, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, every tree... Every tree you see, you can eat of them. It's, they're filled, except for one. He has been entirely gracious and good in the bounty that He has set before them. She has left out every. Maybe He isn't so generous, she might think. And then she adds to His Word by saying, and neither shall you touch it. Now, again... God spoke first to Adam. Maybe this is something that Adam said to his wife. Look, it's a very serious tree. Don't even touch it. God never said that. Making God sound severe. She has made Him sound severe and selfish. And then she softens His word, lest you die, rather than, you shall surely die, this leaves room for the possibility that God is maybe a bluffing God. That God might not follow through. All of this, every bit of it is grounds for disbelief. The truth of the matter is that God is entirely justified in what He gives and what He withholds. And what He has given to them has been so overwhelmingly gracious. These first people lacked nothing. Food in abundance, water to drink, comfort and rest from evil, and even greater, the Word, the, the spoken. They get to hear God. They get to have a fellowship with Him. It says He walks among them in the garden. The special presence of God. And as she stands here on the precipice of this great temptation, her greatest concern and thought should be what did God actually say? I believe this to be the moment of the fall. She has begun already to mischaracterize God. And as we'll see in the next point, it plays out in action. Unbelief has begun in the heart and it will manifest itself in outward rebellion. This is the character and nature of sin. It is doubt and it is denial and disbelief in God and in His Word. I don't think she disbelieved that God was real, or that He was kind, or a friend, but you see, God is so tied to His Word that to not believe His Word is a direct assault on His very character. Eve had everything in her arsenal to overcome the temptation. She had enough in every other fruit to eat from. She had enough in communion and fellowship with God. She had His merciful and His gracious care of her. It has not stopped being the question then as we see our first mother and father fall that we grapple with today. What does God actually say you see our hearts are inclined to question everything about him is he really gracious does he really have the best intentions toward me does he intend good for me in his word is he trustworthy i've been burned so many times in my life can i trust this god Sin instead inclines us to this self-autonomy and governance. We decide what is good for us. We become a law unto ourselves. We reach out and we take what we want. What makes us feel good. God's Word is still that voice intended for our good and for our life. A question for you this morning should be, what did God actually say the first act of faith is believing Him and taking Him at His word? So we see the question, did God actually say is the knife that Satan uses to sever the relationship from God so that we may see in our second point a distortion of God's character. Is God too severe? Satan now sees his entry point and presses harder against the foundation of temptation now laid. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely will not surely die. And then he goes on to say, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see what Satan has done? He has flipped everything on its head. He has denied the curse for disobedience, said that the the covenant of works given to Adam is actually incorrect and unclear. You won't die. He has said what is forbidden won't harm you, Satan does. He says it'll bless you. In fact, if you eat it, God knows this by the way, if you eat it, you will become like a God yourself. Don't you want that? Don't you want what God has? You could be with Him. Sure, you have dominion over the whole earth. But what about more? In turn, what is about to happen will turn everything else on on its head. Just as Satan has twisted the words. Because we'll see that Eve will follow the snake. Adam will follow Eve, and no one will follow God. Last week we saw that Adam was to follow God, and he was to watch over creation. Even a serpent that comes in that's talking, by the way, that should have been the first giveaway. Talking to his wife, whom apparently he was standing beside, and telling her that God didn't actually say that. Whom God had actually spoken to him and said. And now Eve, instead of following him as she was created as a partner and a helpmate, follows Satan. And Adam, as the one who had head over creation, follows Eve, and no one follows God. Is God too severe? How could a piece of fruit bring death? Right? I mean, God must be too severe. Is this some kind of overblown penalty for a minor infraction? After all, God wants you to eat, right? He's given you hunger pains. He wants you to enjoy His creation. The only other conclusion could be that God is selfish. Satan intends to paint the picture that God is actually holding back from you your full potential. That he is keeping you from something. Something for himself. That could be yours if you would just take it. That's Satan's offer. You can become like God yourself. And he has intentionally, God has, blinded your eyes from his wisdom of the knowledge of good and evil. So it would seem that in Eve's eyes, sin has already taken root. Look at how she views the tree now. Verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. All of a sudden she has no mind to all the other trees. All the other abundance that God has given. She now has eyes for the only thing that God has forbidden. She sees the good in taking what God has denied. That is the allure of sin. She saw that the fruit was a delight, it says to her eyes. Is this what eyes wide open by Satan meant? That she could delight in the taking of the very thing that God has restricted? You see, then it says, it aroused in her desires. Desires that she can't suppress. And so she reaches out and she takes it and she eats it. She finds delight and satisfaction in being her own ruler and taking what feels good. James tells us this is exactly how sin works. James chapter 1 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Doesn't that paint for you a garden scene? Coming down from the Father. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin has fully grown, it brings forth death. For 1 John. Chapter 2 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. One theologian says, taking the fruit was not the genesis of sin, but it is the full development and definite expression of it. They eat it. Eve eats it. Adam eats it. Maybe Adam ate it because he looked and said, well, I'll be, man. Eve did not drop dead. And that does look like a good fruit, and so he eats it. Where is the consequence? Where is the death that God promised? Perhaps God was being too severe. How many times have you thought in your head, one little bite won't hurt, It happens to me with every bag of candy. One more. What about with sin? One little look won't matter. It's only a small lie. Besides, the truth would hurt more. And how many times have you felt in you that burning desire? You can't even explain it. Why is it so hard to overcome when you know something's wrong and actually you know because you've done it before, you know how you're going to feel after you take it or taste it or look at it. But you can't control it. It's like Paul says, it's a law or something in me that the thing that I know is wrong I desire and I find myself doing it and I can't stop. It's burning, it's like it lives in me. Yes, this is the fall. This is the desire. This is what the eyes do now. This is what the heart wants. It wants the things God has denied because those things are death. Surely always. Can rebellion against God really deserve death? It seems severe. But to flip things back to right thinking, God has been entirely gracious in both gifts and abundance and instruction. He told them where life was to be found. He told them what the danger is. No, it would have been severe if God didn't warn them of danger. He said, let's just see which trees they eat from. And if they eat from that one, He's going to kill them. No, He's gracious. He's warning. The real severity is found in Satan's temptation. He is bent on utter destruction of the image of God and he hopes for death, physical and spiritual. He hopes to rule this earth. He hopes to find uh, goodness in the things that God forbids. To. He hopes that we would dine on the very things that would bring us death. That we would find satisfaction in the things that will not go with us beyond the grave. That we would even think that God's not the kind of God that would judge me. I'm a good person. I follow Him generally. I show love. God's not that kind of God. He would never be that severe. The act of rebellion... Changes everything. This action, particularly of Adam, means that all of us have fallen. Adam was our representative. Adam was able to choose what was good and he stood at the side and he watched and laid down his dominion over the earth and usurped God's authority and his eyes are open to good and evil. But the Scripture tells us he is now blinded by sin. And now, sin calls on the severity of God. But always God's severity, hear this, always God's severity towards sin is countered by grace and by mercy. He always holds out life and death. And just as the first covenant of works revealed, we see sin's severity mixed with God's salvation, with life, and we see that most of all, that severity of sin in the cross of Jesus Christ. We read it in Psalm 22. In God's own Son, a better Adam, the answer to sin breaking into this world and falling on on Adam and Eve is once again answered with life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 returns us to life. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is Jesus, the better Adam. He knew no sin because he obeyed God fully and the sin of mankind was placed on him so that we might be restored to the righteousness of God. And this came, brothers and sisters, at the severe cost of Christ taking the punishment of death in our stead. Is God too severe? No. No. He is gracious beyond measure. Amen? So we've seen, did God really say, yes, we are to take God at His Word and believe Him. Is God too severe? No, He is gracious towards those who take faith in Him and His means of life so that when we come to our last point, we see what comes of the knowledge of good and evil. Good precedes evil. Evil only exists because something is good. Bavinck says, evil can never come any other way than after good, first through and by the existence of good. And evil is situated in nothing other than the corruption of good. Evil steers good in another direction and abuses it, whips it, and beats it for another purpose. It is true that man had yet to physically die in the eating of fruit. He seems to remain intact. He still had a soul, and a body, and a will. But now the fall has aligned this into an entirely self-serving mode. And it has created this cataclysmic divide between man and between the holiness and the righteousness of God. Note that the first implication of this rebellion, verse seven, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. You see, they came to the knowledge of good and evil. First thing we see is they didn't like what they saw. Satan promised that their eyes would be open to no good and evil, but it was a horror to them. They saw shame and nakedness. They are exposed in the union that they had in nakedness and not being ashamed is now a a, a frantic covering up, putting something uh, together to cover their shame. And sin can never be hidden in this way. You can't just cover it up. You can't just fashion some way to hide it. You see what has happened in the fall. Rather than eyes that looked out and only saw the abundance and goodness of God, the eyes are now trained not to be looking out there, but inward, selfward. And the rest of the story goes that man's eyes will always want what is best for him. And get it by means of desire and sin and lust. Wasn't this Cain's problem? I mean, it doesn't take long after this for us to see our first murder. To see our first jealousy. To see Cain angry and desiring and hating. Or David, a man after God's own heart, can sit on his roof and watch another woman and kill her husband and take her for himself. You see, sin has wrecked everything. There was actually a way for Adam and Eve to come to the knowledge of good and evil without taking the fruit. They could have recognized the evil in Satan's temptation that here is one, here is one who seeks to undermine the rule of God to speak. Uh, to speak lies against God's word, to belittle his promises and his gifts. You see, evil was before them in the temptation as that which was contrary to God. Had they passed this test, they would have seen evil and known only good forever. They could have come to the knowledge without the consequence. Sin first becomes estrangement. We see that estrangement between the husband and the bride here, but also between God. The married couple becomes estranged from each other and their nakedness and they could, uh, they could put some uh, fig leaves together, but there was still a greater estrangement now. Because soon, God's going to come walking in the garden. And they're going to run off and they're going to hide themselves Somewhere. They can't cover up what they did, and they can't brush it away. The truth of the matter is that we still need to have knowledge of what is good and what is evil. We need our eyes open to know evil and to choose good. We need to come to this knowledge on the other side of the fall that has wrecked us in considering these first things What did God really say? And what does God say about sin and about repentance? And what does God love? And what does he call good? And what does he restrict us from? And why does he do it? What does God's law require of me? In fact, here's a way of reading scripture. What does this tell me about God? And what duty does it require of me? This is is where you will find life. Post-fall, the same as it was pre-fall, is God's Word. And from it we come to the knowledge of good and evil. The source of life is found in God's Word. Is He too severe? I think the real question is, why isn't He more severe? Why? After Adam and Eve have rebelled against Him and all His goodness and believed the serpent, why are they still alive? They tried to take His throne to become like gods themselves. They have abandoned Him. Yet we see God is severe in judgment and gracious in salvation and mercy as well. Whatever we reach out for, that God has told us not to do is rebellion and it should have the taste of death to you. And we will always, just like them, will be left naked and ashamed when we rebel against him. So we must reach out. We reach out to a different tree now. We look to a different tree altogether to satisfy our needs and our desires. We must look to that tree, that tree that is called cursed, that tree where the one who hangs upon it is called cursed, that tree where the second Adam who did no wrong hung there for the sake of sinners like us. We reach out to that tree. We look to that tree in faith. In that tree is the knowledge of good and evil. In that tree is the knowledge that evil deserves the severity of God. The very severity that we deserve, He took. And that knowledge of good and evil, as you look to that tree, is God, in all His goodness and graciousness, providing salvation. This is the turning point of all of Scripture. All ink being spilled from this moment on going forward will highlight the plan of salvation and God's saving work to restore what has been broken, to teach us, as Christ said in the temptation, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the Word of God, the Word that comes from his mouth. We have someone who did better, the second Adam, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Death happened spiritually and eventually it did happen physically. God still holds out abundance and good gifts to His people. His severity is exceeded by His grace. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of God by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, which has abounded for many. What we need is to be clothed by Him. Just as a father put the best robe on the prodigal son, taking away the filthy rags and replacing them with a robe, so must we be clothed. We can never cover our shame. We must be clothed by Him. This is coming next week. We need his robes of righteousness. Isaiah 61 says he will clothe us and and he rejoices. He says, I will greatly rejoice. My soul shall exalt my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, ripped away any covering you might have made. And clothed us with His salvation, and He has covered me with His robes of righteousness, the knowledge of good and evil. Let us seek fast after that knowledge found in God's Word and in His Son who is called the Word of God. What did God actually say? He sent His Son the Word who came into the world to express it. You this morning feel estrangement from God every time your heart desires something that is not good. And when those desires well up in you, what is the right, righteous answer? It can only be this. God, what have You said? For that is good. What have You commanded in this life? For that is life. Lord, be not severe with me or treat me as my sins deserve. Give me Christ the only eternal life uh, can be found in him he is the jewel you see the tragedy of the garden has an answer in the jewel of heaven that is jesus christ let's pray.